Glad you're here today. If you uh, can, find a Bible in front of you in one form or another and head over to the book of Malachi. Malachi is one of those weird-sounding prophets because it is a weird-sounding prophet. Uh, easiest way to get there is to go to the book of Matthew in the Gospels and just go backwards one. Last book of the Old Testament is what Malachi is. And we're going to be in chapter 3 today. So our, our last section, the previous section that we were looking at, we were learning about God's justice, we were learning about God's just, uh, uh, judgment, we were learning about the, the messenger who was going to come before the Lord uh, to prepare the way of Christ, right? Uh, and with all that, it might seem a little strange this week to see this almost change of direction, uh, to see this dispute between God and Israel about tithing, about this, this, this issue of how they're handling uh, the money, the funds, the, um, the, the harvest, rather, even, that God has provided them with. And it may seem odd because it just doesn't seem like tithing has anything to do with, with Jesus. And yet it does. It absolutely does. You see, our, our generosity or our lack of it uh, has a lot to do with Jesus because a natural response to, to the grace that we receive from him in the gospel is, is to be generous with all that God has blessed us with. And, and, and before we get into this, let me just admit, as a pastor, talking about money is the most awkward thing in the world because you all know and I know that I benefit from your giving and that creates a really awkward situation here. Uh, and, and yet, I'm going to tell you, we're going to talk about money, we're going to talk about giving here, uh, because we're absolutely committed to preaching, to proclaiming the entire counsel of the Lord, which means we work through the books of the Bible, and we're going to preach what the Word of God teaches. So embracing awkwardness for their commitment to preaching the Word. Um, that said, let's jump right into the passage, Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to be beginning in, in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, money is not an easy topic to talk about, and yet you speak to Israel about their relationship to money, and you often speak to your church today through your word about how we relate to wealth. Please work through your spirit to knock down any protective walls we have put up on this subject so that we might learn that you are indeed a generous God and that there is joy that comes if we also are generous people under your care. May we be encouraged by your word this Lord's Day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So in verse 6, we're going to jump right into this. In verse 6, it's this beautiful passage. It's one of the ones, if you're ever going to see knitted into something, hung up somewhere, it's this verse. And, and it's beautiful, and it serves as this, this transition here, because it's the last verse of the passage we looked at last week, and it's the first verse of the passage that we're looking at together, and it connects the two together. It says, For, the Lord, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And the first thing we see here is that God is unchangeable. He faithfully keeps his commitments regardless of, uh, of what happens. And, and, and now there is something really interesting here that you might miss on a first reading, though. You, you, you notice that phrase there uh, that God uses to describe the people of Jacob. Uh, if you've got it open, you can see it right there. He says, O children of Jacob. See, that's a, an interesting choice because Jacob uh, is this Hebrew word. It means grasper. Uh, you know, to, to hold on to something. You, you remember at his birth, as, uh, at his birth, he actually grabs the heel of his brother Esau. Uh, and, and really, this, this idea of grasping is this, this euphemism of sorts, meaning cheating, dishonest, scheming kind of, kind of idea. And so what you see here is by God calling them the children of Jacob, there's this implied meaning here that just like God, the ancestors of Jacob have not changed all that much. But instead of, of being faithful, they're being cheaters. They're being uh, scheming. They're robbing God of what actually belongs to God. And, and yet immediately after that, immediately after God kind of throws out that seeming insult, uh, he, he's saying this. It's this reminder that because God remains faithful, even while the Israelites scheme, even while they are unfaithful, they will not be consumed because the God, God stands by what he has always said. God continues to sustain them. This is all made even more clear when we see God's actual accusation here in verse 7. <clears throat> from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues, and you have not kept them. Kept them. This reminder here uh, of their history of failure sounds a little bit like God is just piling on. That's not his intent at all. It's his intention here of pointing out, pointing out their sin is so that he might call them back in this moment. That he might call them to repentance, to return. And, and that's the call of God exactly in verse 7. Return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. A call of repentance that includes a promise. It's similar to the one you, you might remember from James 4.8. Draw near to me, God. Or draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, the Israelites respond to this with this question, right? How shall we return? How shall we return? You know, the, the more you look at this, the more you realize it's, it's not a genuine question. It, it's more along the lines of, of saying a mother asking her, her son, you know, why didn't you do the dishes? And her son saying something along the lines of, I, I don't know how to do the dishes. How would I do it? And, and mom knows full well that, that her son knows how to do the dishes. She's taught them. He's done it before. She, you know, there's no excuse for this. It's just something that's kind of thrown out there as kind of a, a reason for my disobedience. And yet, this exchange opens the door for God to ask them in verse 8, Will you rob God? This seems like an impossibility, doesn't it? And, and yet he carries on. He, God says, you are robbing me. And the conversation carries on uh, with God's people asking, How have we robbed you? And this is when God really levies it. He says, in your tithes and in your contributions. They're robbing God they are by keeping wealth that belongs to God. It's like this. If you gave your daughter $10 and said, now give your son one of those dollars. Or give your, give your brother one of those dollars. 
And, and instead of giving that dollar to her brother, she decides to keep all $10. You, you'd be quick to say, no, that was stealing. That was dishonest. See, the Israelites are not giving their tithes. They're not giving their contributions in full. These contributions he speak of, these are kind of technical terms in the Old Testament. Uh, the contributions were not a set amount. It was simply anything they desired to give. It was usually above the tithe. Um, and it included animals. It included wealth of all sorts that they might give. Now, in the Old Testament, well, anywhere really, the word tithe means tenth, one-tenth of something. It refers to the, the proportion uh, of the agricultural crop that, God, uh, that they were supposed to be giving God through the temple because the promised land belonged to God, because God had provided this for them. Um, and you might notice here, it's kind of a little thing, but he says the word tithes with an S on the very end of it. And, and the reason of that is, is because we tend to think there's only one tithe in the Old Testament, 10%, and that's it, and you, you pay it and you carry on with your life. But uh, in actuality, in the Old Testament, there are three tithes. And if you put those three tithes together, it becomes a 23% tithe. I don't understand it. Math people, don't get mad at me. Uh, it's some complex reason that it gets to 23% and not 30%. Um, maybe you can do a dissertation on it. I know we have some people in master's level math. But uh, anyway, uh, also understand the tithe is not a, a, a tax. It's easy for us to think, well, yes, that's Israel. That's the government. That's all that stuff. It's just a tax. It's not. There was actually other taxes that were paid in order to run the civil government of Israel. These, these tithes, though, served three main purpose, this purposes. They were for the priests. They were for feast. Uh, and they were for caring for the poor. First, they were for the support of the priests, the, the, the rest of, and as well as the rest of the tribe of Levi, who, who rendered service to the Lord in the temple and other places, and yet they owned no land, and so they had no way of making money, uh, and so it provided for them and their families. Second, it was, it was to care for the poor, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widows, all of this explained in Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29. It was to care for that. And third, the tithe was used for feasts, and this is the one we tend to maybe not remember. Um, these feasts, it was a time to just celebrate, and they would eat food, and they would drink, and, and it would be a time of recognizing the generosity of God, the goodness of God for them, and, and they'd celebrate. And so in a sense, they, they give to God, and then God takes what they give, and he in turn turns around and blesses them with the very things they give them. God uses those tithes to provide biblical instruction, corporate worship through the priest, uh, as a way to care for those in need, and for joyfully celebrating together as a covenant family. Um, here, though, what we're seeing is they are absolutely robbing God by withholding their tithes. You raise that question, why were they keeping their tithes? Why were they not doing this? Uh, from the passage and other areas, you can kind of tell the economy is down in the sense that uh, maybe the, the harvest has not been as plentiful as they had hoped. Uh, you know, they might be thinking to themselves, if we, if we give our tithe, then there's not going to be enough for us especially if things continue to go downward in the way we're seeing them economically. Many of them had so little to begin with that the idea of giving even a, a portion of the little that they had, you know, felt like something they couldn't spare. Uh, you know, we, we may be tempted in, in this to defend their actions, right? Well, that's just good stewardship. It's not, though. There is such thing as good stewardship that includes saving things, but God, you know, God has said that he will provide for them, and this is what he's requiring of them, and their lack of trust in God is being proven by their actions at this moment. We don't know all the reasons, but, you know, there's looking at the reasons people give sometimes. That maybe they thought that, that feasting was just an unwise way to spend money, so I will not contribute to that. 
Maybe they just wanted to keep it for themselves. After all, it was nearly impossible to verify what anyone was actually giving. No one went and counted up their crops for them to understand it. It's, it's not unlike today. The only person who knows what percentage of uh, your, your salaries or you know, our salaries that we give away to church and charity are, are ourselves and, and God and maybe your accountant or someone who's looked through your information somewhere. Um, all the while, though, they, they, they've robbed God. But then in verse 10, he gives them a way of return. Okay, this is a warm invitation to repentance is what you're seeing here which is not just a feeling right but it, but in this case it, it was accompanied by an action of being generous with what god has given them while while trusting that indeed god will provide for their needs it's a, a call to, to this covenant obedience that, that god desires of them and god says this surprising thing it's one of the strangest things in in, in the text put me to the test it's very, very different than how God typically works. But God himself invites them to test him in this moment to give what they owe and let God prove his sovereign care for them. This is a very difficult challenge, you know. It's easy to see it in paper, not think of it. But, but the challenge here is he's asking them, asking them in a very difficult economy to give what they have and, and to trust that God will provide for them, to give it away rather than hold on to it. And what God promises to do, as we're reading this, if, if we're not careful, he, you might even hear it, right? It sounds a little bit like the health and wealth teaching you might hear from a TV evangelist. In fact, this is the passage that's often used to teach uh, that sort of false doctrine that really preys on some of the most needy people in our society. But I want you to, to notice here that the promise is to meet their needs, not to meet their greeds. You look again there, verse 10 and 11. What does God say he will do? I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And the vine of the field shall not fail to bear. So you, you, you hear that and you read that out of context into our own culture. And it just sounds like, like riches are going to come pouring down on us, right? But, but you look a little closer. Do you see what he's actually talking about? Remember, this, this is an agricultural society. Also, tithes are of the agriculture. It's not everything. The tithes are specifically of the agriculture. The blessing that's going to be poured down is rain. The devourer that's going to, that he's going to rebuke are the bugs and, and, and insects and such that are going to come along and eat up the crops. The, the result is indeed going to be a bountiful harvest that is going to be a benefit to the individual families who are farmers and, and also to the entire nation. Um, the last thing in this passage that we see here, verse 12 is this tip of the hat to this, this reminder of the Abrahamic covenant uh, when, it sa- when he says this, then all the nations will call you blessed and you will be a land of delight. And so that explains our passage, right? The text within the context of the culture that it was written to. And, and yet you come to something like this in the prophets and the question we have is what does this passage mean for us? How do you apply this to our lives in 2018? Isn't that really what we want to know? Does, does God still require the tithe of his people in the church today? Or was that fulfilled in Christ? That's the question we're asking, right? Are we off the hook? Um, well, let's, let's consider this. First of all, as far as I know, not a single one of you live in the designated area of the promised land. You're not there. Um, I know we think Manhattan's pretty great. It's not the promised land. Uh, most of us do not deal in agricultural. I know the voices do. Uh, but Bill, Christy, please do not bring 10% of your hay, your alfalfa, into this place. <laughs> and the rest of you, 
I know the only thing you grow is maybe some grass in your front and backyard. Do not bring 10% of your clippings into this place either. We'll take the hay before that. <coughs> also, the Levitical tribe, the priesthood, it no longer exists. You don't know any Levitical priests. You just don't. They don't exist anymore. There, there's no more brick and mortal temple, mortar temple. Uh, you see what I'm saying here is as we're coming to understand this is that under the new covenant, the tithe is, is no longer in effect. Wahoo, we can keep everything for ourselves, right? You know me better than that. You know God better than that. That's not what I'm saying. But, but the fact that it's no longer a requirement is actually wonderful, okay? And not for the reasons you might think, but it's wonderful. Charles Spurgeon explains it this way. He says, If there were any such rule laid down in the gospel, it would destroy the beauty of spontaneous giving, and it would take away all the bloom from the fruit of your liberality. See, when we receive people into to membership also, right, you, you kind of wonder, what, what is the expectation there? You might have noticed that our vows never mention a tithe of any sort, but instead they say, uh, one, of the, one of the vows says, do you promise to support the church in its work, uh, worship and work to the best of your ability? Support there certainly includes uh, giving financially, but it does not instruct you on how much you're to give. See, in the gospel, things aren't as, as simple, right? It's just do this, do this, do this, like a robot could do. God wants more involvement in the way we work through this. And I'll, I'll tell you that uh, many, many of you probably realize this. In our bulletins, we've been using the term tithe when you get to the page where, where the offering is done. Where, but we changed it this week. Uh, we changed it to better reflect on what we learned from Scripture. It, it previously said we give our tithes and our offerings. And I can see most of you looking at it now. It says we, we give generously. That's what it says now. And so while the Old Testament tithe isn't binding on us, it still does teach us something about who God is. It still does teach us what he wants us to do with the money that we receive as individuals and the money we receive as a church. You know, it, 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 it teaches how to be, us how to be good stewards of the things that he puts into our possession. It's still a good guide to us. And, and really under the new covenant, uh, you know, because of love and, and gratitude and the contentment we have in Christ, it should move us to, to actually give, uh, not to give less, but rather to give uh, with greater generosity than the law has ever required. Well, what I mean is this shouldn't lead us to, to say something along the lines of, yay, I don't have to give anything, or I'm going to cut back to half, or whatever it might be, but, but rather something along the lines of, Lord, take this offering, take, take what you've given me, this portion, and use it to the glory of your name and for the spread of your kingdom. You see, it's a, a tangible way that we, we show that all of our lives, all of life, our careers, our families, our wealth, everything is under the lordship of Christ. When, when we as Christians then give, we also learn that there is absolute joy in doing so. And that sounds like something people just say, right? Um, there really is, though. Uh, so, so I want to bring this to an end. We're not quite there. Don't think I'm done yet. Um, but I want to bring it to an end by sharing 11 principles. I don't know if principles is the right word. 11 things that relate to the way we should be giving uh, as Christians under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, let me begin by this. Uh, number one, we are confessing that everything we have has come from God because everything ultimately belongs to God. God himself in Psalm 50, verse 10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And then two verses later, he says, The world and its fullness are mine. 
I, I remember years ago, uh, Beckham and I went to, uh, my son Beckham and I went to the uh, Legoland in Kansas City, and they had this massive pit of Legos, and you could build anything you want, planes and some amazing things. And, and you get in there, and you start to get possessive over these things. You know, it really felt like they belonged to us. If, if I had set something down and the kid next to me had taken it, I, I probably would have pushed him and taken it back or something like that. You know, this is mine. I, I own these Legos. It really felt that way, but they weren't ours. They, they belonged to Legoland. The, the, the courts would have, you know, stood up and protected them for them. They belonged to Legoland. They were provided to us by Legoland. We couldn't take them with us when we left because they were never ever really ours to begin with. Money is like that. Very much like that. It ultimately belongs to God. All of it. Number two, all of our getting should be designed for giving. In Ephesians 4.28, Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The, the goal of earning there is not just so that we can have, it's not just so that we don't have to steal from someone, but so that we have something that we might be able to share with others. You see, we're merely stewards of what God has put into our care. And a big part of stewardship is, is sharing. Number three, Giving should be proportional to what God has given you. In 2 Corinthians 8.12, God is talking about giving and uh, according to what God has given us. The more that we receive, the more that we, we should give. Number four, the priorities should be determined beforehand, giving from the start, not just from what is left over. There's a number of first fruit statements from the Old Testament you could do, but uh, 1 Corinthians 16.2, speaking of giving, told the Christians on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. In other words, don't just see what's left at the end of a pay cycle. It's wise to discern what, what percentage you plan to give and to give at the start of a pay cycle. I had someone tell me once that uh, they do that. That was immediately after getting paid, one of the first things they do is they give to the, uh, their church and the, and the other charities that they give to. And the reason was they didn't want to be tempted near the end of the month to, th to give less or to not give at all because they had accidentally just spent it on things. Um, during the month leading up to it. So, so we've got to understand this, this is indeed an act of trusting God to provide, but, but doing so is also an act of worship. That's the reason we include it in our, our liturgy to begin with. It's an act of worship when we give back to the Lord, acknowledging it is a gift of His to begin with. Number five, giving should be voluntary, voluntarily and cheerful. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7 says, Whoever sows sparingly will, reap, will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountiful will also reap bountiful. Now listen to this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So does everybody else. Right? No one wants you to give. Yeah, here, you can have this. You know the reluctance there. Uh, when we first began, you know, raising support for this church plant, um, what we called the Manhattan Project at the time, and people would always tell us, you know what that is? That's this, yeah, we know what it is. Uh, the bomb, right? Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I can remember making the first phone call. I, I prayed, and then I called uh, this godly man I knew, and I asked him, would you be willing to be our first support in, in this gospel work we, we hope to do in, in Manhattan, Kansas? And, and he didn't say, ah. I have to, I guess, uh, no. He, he said, I'd love to. And, and he committed a, you know, a generous amount for, for three years to us. And I, I got off the phone and I talked to Laura and I was just about to, 
to cry at his generosity because calling someone to ask them to support is one of the most awkward things you can ever do in your life. And, and yet to have someone respond that way was just so amazing and encouraging. Sometime uh, later when uh, John Dunning and I were planning, we we're going to go down to Dallas and we we're going to meet with this, this donor who we've never met and we knew that he was a, a substantial part of what we were trying to do here financially. Uh, and, and I was at the home, uh, a man named Bob and, and a woman named Sherry Raymond, Bob and Sherry Raymond, and they were asking about these, these things because uh, they knew me well, actually, so they started asking, well, what are you going to wear? It was really this question of, please don't dress like you usually do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sure enough, you know, they started asking Laura about my clothes and find out I really don't own a suit. <laughs> um, and so the next thing I know, Bob has taken me, like, they make me get in the car and go with Bob over to Joseph A. Banks, and he's buying me this nice suit and a tie and socks and things I don't really think I needed, but it was great. I had this actual outfit I could go and have this, this meeting with, with and, uh, uh, you know, they just kept insisting that they wanted to do it, and to see their generosity in that moment, to see here's a need and we can meet this, well, was so encouraging. And, um, you know, I was, um, as I was walking out of the store, I had these, these bags in my hand, multiple of them, and I'm, and I'm telling Bob, kind of joking, I, I feel like Julia Roberts in, in uh, Pretty Woman. <laughs> and, and Bob just laughed and responded, I assure you, this night will not end like that. <laughs> Both good with. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm reading that. I I'd honestly had forgotten some of this, but I was reading in an old journal of mine re recently, and, and right after... Uh, writing about that, my, my journal was followed by this prayer. Uh, so this is about a five, six-year-old prayer. God, the way you have provided for us thus far makes me ashamed at my anxiety for how you will provide for us in the future. Give us faith not only to believe that our sin was forgiven on the cross at Calvary, but faith to believe that you love your people and you'll build your church. Make us to trust you will continue to provide as only you can and as only you have. It is such, you know, the, the, the generosity that we saw was just such an incredible encouragement. Uh, number six, uh, when we give, know that it provides for ministry, for, for people, and, and for a building where preaching and teaching of the Word of God, as well as mercy ministry, can be done. Uh, the same donor that, that John and I met with has continued to be incredibly generous to us. Uh, most of you know this, you know, and, and, and he's been generous. And this is what's so interesting. Not because he knows me well or John well or any of us well. He, he's done this because he knows the Lord Jesus Christ well. That's where the generosity comes. We hardly know the man. And, and yet he's been willing to, to do so much for us because he wants to see the kingdom of God spread and the, and the church grow. This, this man is uh, willing to purchase this building for us. He's already put 10% of it down. Uh, not long ago, though, he, he mentioned something. He said that before he completes the purchase, he wants to see where we're at financially. And he didn't mean that as a negative thing. He's saying, I want to make sure that you as a congregation are, are, are generous people, that, that you'll be willing to step and actually provide uh, for caring for this building. Meaning, I don't want to hand over a building to you that you can't afford to actually pay the light bill for and that you can keep it up in, in, in good condition. And, and, and so... Uh, you know, he's looking for that generosity in our giving to, to give in such a way that, that we could afford it. And I, and I hope we are, and I believe we are. I trust it. Uh, but let me also encourage, if you, if you haven't already, to, to pray about uh, what you give to the ongoing ministry of your church home here. Uh, number seven, moving on. 
Uh, our giving goes to evangelism and missions. We desire for Manhattan, uh, for your giving to Manhattan Press, but we also desire for you to be giving towards others, uh, other ways that the gospel is being proclaimed, ways that we as a church simply aren't going to reach. Uh, I'm thinking of the Dunnings and with our with our UF. You know, if you want to support them, they would absolutely love it. The the Castings and the Hardys with uh, with with crew. You know, uh, there's a PCA church plant right now down in Andover, Kansas. I know they could use your support if you uh, if you're thinking about it. Travis and I are both on their temporary session, uh, and, and we just know that might be something, so think about that, pray about that. And of course, missions, right? We, we, we as a church at this point only support missionaries through our presbytery, meaning we give to the presbytery, and the presbytery gives to the, to the missionaries, but there's not a whole lot of that right now. But uh, I know that starting next year, one of our members, K-State senior Zach Robson uh, and his fiancee Ellie, are going to be training to go be overseas missionaries. Uh, that's going to be beginning in the fall, I believe. So uh, as far as their support raising, be praying about that and consider supporting that. Uh, number eight, uh, we give for the release, relief of others. Uh, as we're taught in Galatians 6.10, we, can care for, uh, we care for Christians first and within the body, but also for the mercy needs of, of any. Uh, sometimes it's done through the church. Sometimes it's done directly to an individual. Both of those are, are, are wonderful. I know it, it's been so encouraging to have witnessed how generous uh, brothers and sisters within this congregation and brothers and sisters without, outside of this congregation have been to Sam and Leslie Cassing. Uh, first a couple of years back when, when Adeline was, was born quite early, uh, and then again after his recent accident. Uh, I just know that um, their fears and their prayers of, of how they would pay for these unexpected expenses has been met in an amazing way because of your generosity, because of the way God has been working through many of you. Uh, thank you. Uh, number 10, giving should be sacrificial and generous. 2 Corinthians 8, 3-4 through 4 tells us, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. When you pray, when you think, when you discuss uh, what your giving might look like, one of those things we want to know is, is, is this a sacrifice in any way? Are we giving like, the extra change that we were going to just you know, throw into the bucket in our car and forget about it? Or is this thoughtful in a way that it actually uh, is a sacrifice? It, and that might mean that you start giving if you, if you haven't been at all. It might mean giving more if you're already giving. Uh, Ian Duguid says this. He says, Our keeping problem flows from stingy hearts that seek their satisfaction and filling either bank accounts with money or homes and storage units with overflowing possessions. And so the, the, the question we, we've got to figure out, the question we need to be praying about, the question, uh, if you're married, that you need to be having a discussion about it, is something along the lines, you know, is, is our giving generous? Are we like the Israelites, prone to, to either hoard money in fear or prone to spend money on selfish things, or are we truly generous with what God has given us? See, at some point in our Christian life, we stop asking this question, how much must I give, as if it's this really difficult thing, Right? And we trust the truth of Acts 20.35, which, which calls us to, to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we trust that is true? One last one. I only got to 11. You know, I'm not Jordan Peterson. I couldn't think of 12 things. Uh, so number 11, mature Christians model generous giving for others. I think it's pretty universal that we as Parents love to see our children be generous with the things that we give them. 
Uh, there was a family that we knew in Kansas City who taught this to their children in a lot of ways, but one of the ways really stood out uh, by telling them, if you ever see someone in need, give them what they need, and we will replace whatever it is you gave away. And, and they didn't just mean that in huge poverty kind of ways, like there's a guy with a coat in the cold. You know, those situations don't come up real often, but um, they meant it in little ways too. Say you're at a party and, and there's one cupcake left and you really want the cupcake. Don't even fight for it. Let, let someone else have that cupcake. Uh, and, and if you still desire a cupcake afterwards, we will get you a cupcake. And it sounds weird, but, but they learned to trust their parents would provide for them and it made them incredibly generous with, with what they had. They, they modeled this, you know, after the, the way that God promises to provide for us as our parents and we as his children. It, it gives him joy, God, that is, to, to see us be generous with what he gives us. So let us be thankful to God for all that we have and let us trust him to provide whatever we lack. And may we, may we look to him daily as the good source or the source of every good gift that we have. Uh, brothers and sisters, we have, we have a generous Heavenly Father. We really, really, really do. It's easy to look at, at everything across the line and compare yourself to people next to you and, and miss the fact that we have an incredibly generous Heavenly Father. I'm not just talking about financially. We're talking about the grace that we receive in the gospel through Christ. We're talking about every aspect of our life. Um, and, and, and the way, you know, but just think about that. A generous Heavenly Father that he gave his only son to the world. Uh, and we have a generous Savior who gave his life voluntarily as a sacrifice to secure for us all who would trust in him with faith for the forgiveness of sin. So uh, we have benefited from the endless and gracious generosity of our Lord. Let us in response be a generous people. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to see that wealth and money are not bad things. They are good gifts of yours. Help us to be wise with money so that it is a powerful tool as it leaves our hands and, and not an idol that we worship with hoarding or selfish purposes. Please do open the windows and pour down upon us until there is no need. We don't ask that as some magical command to gain more wealth for ourselves, but we ask that for the, the sake of being satisfied in you and confident in your provision for, <clears throat> for us even when we are generous. That's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.